invite you to take a copy of the scriptures and turn with me to the book of Psalms, to Psalm chapter 2. As we've said this month, we're taking a break from our uh, series in the book of Deuteronomy to consider select psalms, which will uh, help us uh, think about the meaning and significance of uh, the first coming of, of Christ. And uh, I think it's an appropriate place to begin, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is one of the uh, most often quoted psalms in the New Testament um, to understand Jesus' identity and uh, why he has come into the world uh, in his first appearing. Uh, So with that in mind, let's uh, turn our attention to the reading of Psalm chapter 2, and let's listen closely to the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I think Psalm 2, again, is a, is a helpful place for us to begin uh, this Christmas season because uh, while it focuses our attention on God's anointed one, the Messiah, the, the Christ, it does so in a way that is simultaneously realistic about the world that we live in and hopeful about our destiny. And that's important because I think for a lot of people today, maintaining that balance is a really challenging thing to do. On the one hand, being honest and realistic about the times in which we live, and on the other hand, being hopeful about the future of God's people. For some, that seems to be a nearly impossible task to maintain those things. And it's in some ways understandable. You know, turn on the news and very quickly, hope can seem like nothing more than the product of a naive optimism based in ignorance or uh, delusion at best. You, know, you, you can't have hope and be realistic about the world and the society in which we find ourselves living. That's how a lot of people think. And it is a tempting conclusion for us to reach at times, given how grim and dark things can be. But 
what I want to suggest to you today is that Psalm 2 begs to differ. (laughs) Psalm 2 is both realistic and hopeful. Now, before we dive into the psalm, I think it's helpful to notice the, the structure of the psalm. There are four stanzas or four sections, three verses in each section, and you, you hear a different voice speaking in each section. And so in, in verses one through three, the nation's raging. Uh, the kings and leaders of the world speak to one another in verse three. And then in verses four through six, the second section, the, the voice of God the Father, actually you hear him laughing at the ridiculous rebellion of the nations. So the laughing God. And then in verses 7 through 9, the voice of uh, God's begotten son who is appointed as king in Zion. So the raging world, the laughing God, the reigning son, and then finally in verses 10 through 12, you have what we could say is the voice of God's people calling the rebellious kings and rulers of the nations to submit themselves to God's reigning son. Okay, that's, that's the structure of this psalm, the raging world, the laughing God, the reigning son, and the pleading word. So let's jump in and look at the raging world in verses 1 through 3. It is very important to recognize that Psalm 2 begins with a rhetorical question. Why? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? That the question itself communicates a perspective that you and I need to have, brothers and sisters. If, if we know the one who sits in the heavens, if we understand the godness of God, can you Can you think of anything more futile than trying to break his bonds? Can you think of anything more pointless and patently absurd than trying to rebel against him? It is a denial of reality. And that is what this opening question recognizes. And I said that's that's vital to understand because... The the psalmist doesn't actually begin Psalm 2 with the nightmare of human evil and the abuse of power as kings and rulers set themselves up against the Lord. And that, that that is a depressing prospect to be sure, a prime candidate for snuffing out hope. But the psalmist does not begin from below. The psalmist does not begin with a purely horizontal point of view. The psalmist doesn't look at what's going on from that perspective. He actually begins, we could say, from above with with the one who presides over it all in uncontestable sovereignty. And he anchors his hope there. And so as he considers the, the rage and the conspiring and the turmoil of the nations... Knowing that God reigns, he sees the whole thing as patently ridiculous. That's the point of the rhetorical question at the opening 
of Psalm 2. With God seated in the heavens and his anointed enthroned in Zion, why do the nations rage? That's the thrust of this question. And it's this perspective that enables us to face our twisted, backwards, upside-down world with complete realism and hope. It's because we know who is in control that we can face reality without being overwhelmed by it. You see, this psalm, I think it's one of the reasons it's one of the opening psalms, this psalm is meant to shape and form our perspective of the world. Look at how the psalm describes the nations in verse 1. They are, they are raging and plotting. They're conspiring together. Their kings, in verse 2, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, there's no sugarcoating there, is there? This is, this is the human heart laid bare. And both individual and collective expression. And, and notice the word used for the Lord's anointed in verse 2 is the word for, for Messiah. They're, they're saying this against the Lord and his Messiah, or against the Lord and his Christ. Or in the words of Luke chapter 19, Verse 14, they are saying, we will not have this man rule over us. That's what the nations are saying. And I don't even think I need to bother trying to give illustrations because we all intuitively know this is a common attitude today, isn't it? We could look at examples of this across the world, but I think it's also right to say increasingly in our own country, Christian beliefs and ethics are simply unwelcome in the public square. You know, court justices are now supposed to recuse themselves from making judgment lest their Christian convictions sway their decision making. I mean, what, what is that? How do you interpret that? Well, Psalm 2 interprets it. This is the raging world that simply will not have God. It is the conspiring of the rulers of the earth taking counsel against the Lord as his anointed. And in the book of Acts, when the raging of the nations uh, erupted really in the first persecution that struck the church recorded in Acts chapter 4, it was Psalm 2 that the people turned instinctively to as they sought to understand the meaning of what they were facing. Uh, Luke, the author of Acts, says, they lifted up their voices together to God and they prayed, you know what they prayed? They, they prayed the first three verses of Psalm 2. And then they say in response to the psalm, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus who you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, okay, so there are the kings of the earth, the rulers, along with the Gentiles. And the word Gentile just means the nations or the people. So see what the, see the picture that's being painted here. And Luke says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Okay, so you see what the church 
and Acts is doing. The early church read the sufferings of Jesus under Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Romans and the Jews through the lens of Psalm 2. So in the crucifixion and sufferings of Jesus, they saw the nations and the rulers of the earth seeking to overthrow the yoke of the Lord and his anointed. But they also saw, they also saw their own suffering, their own persecution for Jesus' sake as another iteration of the same age-old, age-long opposition of the kings of the earth who want to overthrow God's claim on people's lives. And so Psalm 2 is the interpretive lens. It's the interpretive grid for the people of God to make suffering, make sense of suffering on account of identifying with the Lord's anointed, with Jesus Christ. Now that's a, that's a vital lesson for, I think, all of God's people to understand. Because if you, if you want to have hope in the midst of difficulty that arises as a result of you belonging to Jesus, then you've got to, you've got to learn the Bible's description of the world. Right? The scriptures have to interpret reality for us. That's what the church was learning to do in Acts chapter 4, and it's what I think we need to learn to do today. And so that's why, after quoting Psalm 2, seeing their experience through the lens of Scripture, instead of giving in to despair, instead of running away, instead of watering down the message of the gospel to avoid persecution, even instead of asking for deliverance from uh, the suffering, uh, they resolved instead to stand firm and keep preaching. They resolved to keep proclaiming the very same message that we have summed up in Psalm 2. God reigns, take refuge in Christ. And so they pray in the light of Psalm 2, Now, Lord, look upon uh, their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And Luke says that after they, they prayed, the place where they were gathered was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of the Lord with boldness. You see, they, they, were, they, were, they were told to stop talking about Jesus Christ upon pain of suffering. But Psalm 2, the truths of Psalm 2 gave them a backbone gave them a spine, gave them courage. And by the Holy Spirit, they continued to proclaim the message, God reigns, take refuge in Christ. And so Psalm 2 helps God's people, helps us in a raging world. With It it, it looks at the world with realism and it gives us hope. Uh, In a a world, um, raging world, Uh, where things can often be dark and grim. We don't have to sugarcoat things. We don't have to stick our head in the sand. Psalm 2 actually provides us with the theological perspective to face things head on. And so look at the next section in verses 4 through 6. We see here God's response and the raging world confronted by 
the laughing God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So ask the question, what is it that allows God's people to face the dark world without fear? What, What can help us face trials head on? It is seeing clearly the effortless reign of the Lord. That he presides over it all in absolute sovereignty. Seeing clearly the Lord who sits in the heavens and who hears every conspiring whisper of the raging nations as they come together against the Lord. And what Psalm 2 reminds us is the Lord finds it all tantamount to a joke. It's laughable in his sight. We could say God is unimpressed. Now, if, if you adopt a kind of Western sentimental view of God as a kind of great softy in the sky, you're probably not going to know what to do with Psalm 2. In fact, you might even be a little bit offended by it. If you've come to think that people are basically good and and God is unfailingly nice, you you will struggle with Psalm 2. On the other hand, if you are weary with sin... If you are tired of corruption and injustice and wrongdoing, if you are are tired of abuses of power and misuses of power, and you've come to know the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, then when you see the world conspiring to overthrow God, then the laughter of heaven will be a comfort to you. The laughter of heaven will be a source of assurance to you. It is the laughter of the one who truly presides over everything. Instead of troubling you, this laughter reassures you because God is so secure in his governance over all peoples and their actions that the mere suggestion of the nations overthrowing God is comedy of the highest degree. But, but notice that God does more than just laugh. If you look at verse 6, he, he speaks. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And maybe you've been wondering, what, what's this all got to do with, with Christmas? Well, what are we celebrating in the first coming of Christ? What is Christmas all about? You know, certainly we celebrate the the birth of Christ who came to obey and bleed and die uh, to secure entirely the salvation of sinners. That is gloriously true, the very heart of the good news of the gospel. But I think sometimes, sometimes we are too quick to focus narrowly on the subject of personal salvation so that we actually lose sight of the full scope of the good news. The first advent, the first appearing of Christ, we could say, was God's response to this raging world. 
Christmas is, another way we could say this in light of Psalm 2, Christmas is about the laughing God who sets his king to reign over all things, knowing that no matter what the world does in its opposition to Jesus, of the increase of his government and of his kingdom, as we sing, there will be no end. Now, take a look at the third section in verses 7 through 9. And Again, we hear another voice. This time we hear the voice of God's anointed, the reigning son. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so here the son speaks of the divine decree, God's eternal purpose. And notice that the divine decree begins with a statement of identity about the speaker. He is identified as God's son. Uh, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, if Remember uh, an important rule of interpreting the Bible that we've talked about multiple times here at Trinity. The best rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scriptures themselves. And Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 tells us how we are to read and understand Psalm 2. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 tells us that it is God the Father speaking here, identifying the anointed one, as the divine son. The early church talked about prosopological exegesis, identifying the different divine persons, speaking in places like the Psalms. And Hebrews 1 is engaged in prosopological exegesis, telling us God the Father is speaking here of his divine son in Psalm 2. Now, When we hear the language of beginning, we might be tempted to think of when Jesus was born as a baby, as a a human being, with Psalm 2 kind of looking forward prophetically to his human birth. But that's not, I think, how we're meant to understand this. It's certainly not how the church has understood Psalm 2. Instead, it has read Psalm 2 to say that Psalm 2 speaks of an eternal beginning. And the today is the eternal presence of the divine life. Commenting on this psalm, Augustine said regarding the words, today I have begotten you. He says that the most true and Catholic faith proclaims the eternal generation of the only begotten Son. In other words, the Son is without beginning or end, eternally begotten of the Father. There never was when the Son was not. The decree found here, summed up in Psalm 2, the decree contains a description of the eternal relation between the Father and his Son. And that's why when you read John 1, for example, John 1.18, uses the very same language as we find here in Psalm 2, though the ESV makes it a little bit difficult to spot right away. Literally, it speaks of Jesus as the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. 
So the son who is appointed king over the nations of the earth is none other than the second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten son of God who in the fullness of time took on flesh. Our catechism, I think, has one of the best summaries of this reality. It says, The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was and continues to be both God and man uh, in two distinct natures and one person forever. Now, of course, when Jesus was, was born the kings of the earth did not get it. They didn't know what was going on. King, King Herod certainly didn't understand what was happening in his time. He thought Jesus was just yet another rival to his political authority. So he ordered the murder of two-year-old boys and younger throughout the, that area and uh, was trying to do that in order to snuff out what he saw as a threat to his throne. He, he didn't realize that this king is not like all of the kings of the nations who plot and scheme in order to maintain their rule, but the scheming of Herod could never thwart God's eternal purpose to set his incarnate son on Mount Zion. And notice in the decree, not only the son's divine identity, but the scope of his dominion. If you look at verse 8, ask of me, Father says, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Right? There's no people, there's no place, there's no tribe where his dominion does not extend. He is king and Lord over it all. The earth is his possession. It is God's to give. And God has given it to his son. And so in a world where so much is twisted and backwards and wrong, do you, do you see what the first coming of Jesus is really all about in the light of Psalm 2? In, in the midst of the strutting and preening and, and proud activity of fools who set themselves up as, as trendsetters and power grabbers and lawmakers and culture shapers, God, in the midst of it all, has set his king on the throne and given the nations to him as his possession. And so we have to learn to look beyond the arrogant efforts of, of rulers, of governments, of legislators. We have to see through the apparent power of things like social media to shape opinions and steer societies. And remember that the true king has come and there is no place beyond his rule and no one outside of his dominion. And what does that do to us? Well, it encourages us to lift up our hearts and rejoice because Jesus Christ reigns. The true king has come. And, and notice the power of his reign described at the end of verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See the powerful word picture there. Against the iron rod rule of Jesus Christ, the rebellion of the kings and rulers of this world, those who have the greatest power, 
are nothing more than clay pots. What does that mean of our own puny rebellions against the Lord? The kings of the earth think themselves high and mighty, don't they? But the truth is that the righteous wrath of Jesus Christ is an iron rod and our rebellious lives are nothing more than clay pots. Now, maybe that imagery grates against our Christmas time sensibilities. <laughs> you know, we've got sweet baby Jesus in mind, perhaps, with Mary and Joseph and the cattle um, joined by the shepherds and the wise men who've somehow simultaneously all made it to the manger scene at the same time. And maybe even in your mind, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer has snuck in there somehow with a little drummer boy in the background, grumpa-bum-bum. Right? Um, that's Christmas to me, Pastor. Don't, don't ruin it for me. Well, not so fast. Because if you've, if you've lived long enough in this world, then by personal experience, I think, you've come, I hope, to realize that what we need most urgently is not a sentimental Christ. Not a sentimental Jesus. What we really need is a king who will execute justice and render righteous judgment on the whole world. A justice that cannot be avoided, a justice that cannot be subverted, a justice that cannot be thwarted by anyone. I mean, don't, don't we need that today in the midst of all of the injustice and bribery and lies and deceit and backhanded deals and selfish abuses of power. We need a just king. And Psalm 2 declares that that just king has come. And friends, that is unimaginably good news for the world, for anyone who has taken refuge in the sun. And that leads us to the last stanza. we Seeing the raging world, the laughing God, the reigning sun, and then finally the psalm ends with this pleading word. What, what should we do? What should the peoples of the earth do in the light of this king's first coming? Well, look at verses 10 through 12. Be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. One of the things we need to appreciate is that the gospel comes to us with both promises and warnings. And, and we are to, we're to embrace the promises and we are to seriously heed the warnings. And Psalm 2 ends with a warning about the absolute sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's king over all. We, we all must reckon with him. It's with him we all have to do. There's no avoiding him. All who reject him, all who oppose him, all who deny him, Psalm 2 says, perish in the way. But friends, here's the thing. It does not have to be that way. It does not have to be that way for any one of us. Psalm 2 says, if we will but serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling and kiss the sun, kiss the sun, it's the language of fealty, of honor and love and trust. Kiss 
the Son. You know, the book of Psalms opens, you remember, by describing uh, how there are ultimately two ways to live. There is the way of the wicked that leads to destruction, and there is the way of the righteous that leads to, to the blessed life. And Psalm 2, here we find the key, the key to the blessed life. Where is it found? By taking refuge in the Son. You see, in his first appearing, this is something else we need to understand to grasp the nature of Christ's kingly rule. He did not come first in judgment. In his first appearing, Jesus came to provide refuge for rebels like you and me. He is, he is the king who exercised his sovereignty by laying down his life and taking it up again. He's the king who came to render his authority in sacrificial service so that by a life of humble obedience and a sacrificial death on the cross and a victorious resurrection, he might secure every provision for anyone who wants to be right with God. He wants to be reconciled to the Father. The gospel means that no one need perish in the way. No one needs to be dashed to pieces like a clay pot by the iron rod rule of Jesus Christ. There is free offer here in Psalm 2, in the gospel, to enjoy the blessed life and the safe refuge that is Jesus Christ, God's Son. Because he himself died a cursed death under God's judgment so that a way would be opened for sinners to enjoy the blessed life. Isn't that amazing? I mean, isn't the, isn't the gospel incredible that the eternally blessed son was cursed so that we might enter into his blessed life? So take refuge Psalm 2 says, take refuge in King Jesus. Kiss the Son. Turn from sin and rebellion while it's still day. Because one day there will be a second advent. There will be a second appearing of God's Son. When, and the scriptures say to us, therefore, that while, while it is still day, while you hear his voice... Remember another way that Hebrews quotes the Psalms. Do not harden your hearts. Uh, Revelation 19 verse 15 describes the moment of Christ coming again to rescue his people and render judgment on the living and the dead. And did you know that Revelation 19 quotes Psalm 2? It says, he will rule them with a rod of iron and tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of Almighty God. And so friends, while you hear the summons of Psalm 2, while you listen to his voice, do not harden your hearts. Take refuge in the Son, for blessed are all who take refuge in him.
Let's pray together. Our Father, forgive us for ever allowing the the raging of the world to drive us into despair and a loss of hope. Make us a people who live in this world with a Psalm 2 perspective. I pray for any of those among us today who have not yet taken refuge in your Son, that you now would lead them by the word of the gospel and by your Spirit to take refuge in him and to enjoy the blessed life that's found in him alone. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.